If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew 5. And I realize that as you're turning there, if we haven't got a chance to meet, my name is Lance, and I serve as one of the pastors here. It's a great privilege of mine to often consider the Bible together at this moment. And so we've been in a series in Matthew, and Matthew 5 is where we're about to read from. So Matthew 5. Those of you who have a Bible with you, or perhaps grabbed it on your phone or the hardcover one in front of you, may immediately feel familiar. Certain things just feel like home because they are well-worn paths. And maybe you turn to Matthew 5 and you just sort of let out a kind of sigh like, oh, because it's the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not sure, and I don't, haven't done the research project. I would invite anyone who knows how to do things like this to do so. But I often wonder, especially when I come to a moment like Sermon on the Mount, that if you properly asked, say, a thousand people, 10,000 people, 100,000 people around the world from all different backgrounds, not Christian and Christian, from the West and from the East, rich, poor, all across as many spectrums as you could possibly get, and you ask them to tell you what they know concerning Jesus. Or maybe you could ask a specific question like this, what's the most famous thing Jesus ever said? I would be fascinated to see the results. My guess is that for Christians who grew up understanding it, they might think of the importance or the most memorable thing that he said. They might go to Great Commission. They might say, from Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of family feud-esque list we would create, but my guess is, my hunch, that no matter what someone knew previously concerning Jesus, that something from the Sermon on the Mount would come up in that list. They'd say, Jesus, wasn't he the one who said, blessed are the poor? Or wasn't he the one that talked about anger or loving your enemies? Didn't he say to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? And there's good reason that that saying or those lists would come to the forefront because of all the recorded teaching of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most beloved I think there's a number of reasons for this. I want to remind you as we begin reading, I'm going to read the first 12 verses of this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, as it's been called. I want to give just an observation before we read and then take a moment to pray. And that is that this is really the first time, as far as Matthew presents it, this is the first time that Jesus is on full display in his own voice, in his own words. If you've been following along, you let me know that twice... Twice in Matthew chapter 4, we heard this phrase, that Jesus went around preaching the kingdom. He preached the kingdom of God. And you may have been curious and thought to yourself, what does that mean? How do you preach the kingdom of God? What happens at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, we see the answer. You may recall in Matthew chapter 4 that there are now disciples, people who are closely following Jesus, that he invited to come with him on his journey. They're following him as though he were a rabbi. And if you had left behind fishing boats and family and friends and where you were, you might ask the question, what is it going to mean to follow Jesus? What is he about? And in many ways, the Sermon on the Mount begins to answer that question. If you were amongst the crowds that are described at the end of chapter 4, crowds that had seen Jesus smack around demons and send them out from people, if you had seen Jesus healing, this is what the end of chapter 4 says, healing those afflicted with various diseases... 
you may want to get close and near just to say, how does this guy do it? What is he about? And all of those things, the crowds that are rushing in because they're in awe of what he does and the disciples who have given up everything and are following him now, as well as the word from Matthew that Jesus was preaching, all of these things culminate now in the answer that is given to us in Matthew chapter 5. What is Jesus going to say? And that's where we begin. I'm going to read 12 verses from Matthew 5. We're actually going to spend a few weeks in these 12 verses. But as an introduction today, let's read these 12 verses together. I would love for you to follow along. If you have a Bible with you, there'll be words on the screen too. The fifth chapter of Matthew begins like this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray just for a moment. God, we ask that these words would be life to us. They are not idle nor dead, but living and active. And so we invite you, Holy Spirit, to cut down through motives, desires, distractions, and doubts, and help us to see. We ask these things knowing, God, that you've invited us to call you Father. Your ear is bent toward us. You have an open ear. I pray now that you would open our hearts, that we would be able to see what you've given to us and what you say in the person of Jesus. So we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. As we begin the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to do an introduction to describe what's happening here. Why does Matthew set it out the way that he does? How is Matthew different than the other Gospels? So we're going to deal with the text for a little while, as I think what I want to say. Sometimes in studying the Bible together as a church, one of the best things that can happen, what's the application? Well, the application is we just know our Bibles a little bit better. So there's going to be some know our Bibles better kind of moments here at the outset. And then I'm going to settle. I'm going to try to hang our hat on two different words that are going to summarize, I believe, the theme of not only the first 12 verses, but perhaps all of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. And I'm going to use two words that are very basic. And by basic, I mean they're simple and pretty easy to understand. I hope not basic in the the way that some people insult others by calling them basic, whatever that means. These are the two words that we're going to come to hang our hats on. Happy and whole. Happy and whole. 
if there is a way, and I'm not sure there is a way to fully describe exactly what it is that Jesus is trying to get across with his words, I think that these two words are getting close, happy and whole. So first we're going to deal with the text, and then we're going to think about those two concepts. So the first thing to mention here is that Matthew is intent on showing us the way to Jesus, according to Matthew, the way it seems in his gospel, the way to Jesus is to describe his teaching. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just that. It's a recorded teaching. There is something to make note of, though, here at the outset. Though the Sermon on the Mount is the most popular, perhaps most well-known, it is certainly not the only teaching that Jesus gave. In fact, one of the ways, remember I said a couple of weeks back or have over the course of time that reading a gospel is a really good exercise in the Bible because we can compare and contrast it with the other ones. So let me give you a couple of different things that are different. If you're in the book of Mark, for instance, Mark is going to major on the miracles. If you're in Mark, he loves the action. Mark is a caffeine-riddled, high-energy writer who wants to just get to the point. It's the shortest of all the Gospels. If you're reading through it, you're going to see the word immediately over and over and over again. Immediately, he went and he cast out some demons. Then immediately, he was helping a person survive. And then immediately, immediately. For that reason, it became one of the first Gospels that we read with my kids at home. It's a great Gospel for children because they have action after action after action. Mark seems intent to show who Jesus is by his miracles. It is the power of Jesus that's on display and demonstrated in Mark. It's not the rest of it is downplayed, but that's kind of the theme in Mark. It's not the same in Matthew. Luke... Though if you would call Mark kind of a a caffeine-riddled, immediately look at the power, look at the miracles kind of gospel, Luke is a much more staid, careful, you know, he was a historian, likely a physician. He was careful in his attribution of details and times and dates and places. The theme of Luke seems to be that to understand Jesus, what you need to get is his journey. And it wasn't about the destination, it was about the friends we made along the way. You know, that's, it's more the spirit of, it's the journey of Jesus being dead set, his heart, his face set like flint toward Jerusalem. So you read Luke and it's this saga, the Christ who has come making his way to fulfill through his life, his death and his resurrection, all that the Messiah was supposed to do. So Mark is hyper miracles and Luke is journey to Jerusalem. John is just a little more literary and metaphorical. John is a writer in the fullest sense. Maybe a little bit artsy. You ever sat with someone and you knew what you were going to get in a moment because they started a sentence like this? As an artist, I'm not sure if everyone does that or not, but I usually, I usually smirk a little bit when I hear that because I never know what I'm going to hear. Someone could say, as an artist, I've been collecting llamas for 47 years. You never know. You just don't know what's going to say. Someone says, as an artist, they usually mean, be prepared for something literary and metaphorical and feely, right? A little bit. John is a wonderful metaphorical book. You know, John says, oh, you want to understand Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was light. No, He was light, and the darkness didn't like that. But He's a Father, and He gave us the right to become children. John is constantly reaching for metaphors. 
So if Mark is caffeine-riddled miracles immediately, 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 and Luke is a journey to Jerusalem, and, and John is a little bit more of an artist, and he thinks metaphorically and gives us some of the most beautiful visions of Jesus, then I think it might be fair, if we were going to characterize Matthew, the book that we're in, why is it that Matthew gives us the Sermon on the Mount at the outset? It's likely because Matthew seems to emphasize how Jesus teaches It is the things that he says that will be a clue to his life and an invitation into the kingdom. Matthew emphasizes over and against more than, not that he downplays the rest of it, but more than Mark and more than Luke and more than John, Matthew emphasizes what Jesus said. The Sermon on the Mount is certainly the most popular, but it's not the only of the recorded teachings of Christ. In this gospel alone, I think you can discern more or less at least five big chunks of teaching. These moments where he gives a kind of monologue, where he's didactic. Chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, that's what we're about to jump into. You probably know that one. He deals with the Beatitudes and salt and light and anger and oaths and retaliation. All kind of teaching concerning the law and its interpretation done properly. So that's the Sermon on the Mount, one big chunk. You give him a few chapters, and in verse 5 of chapter 10, we get another didactic teaching from Jesus. Another big chunk of his teaching. He sends out the 12 apostles. Tells them what to expect. In their case, not much. He basically just tells them, look, don't, be, don't expect to be received well. Don't expect to get rich. Don't expect to, you know, like have a pillow and stuff. He even tells them in that sort of account what to do with people who are mean to them and reject them. But it is a recorded teaching. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, in Matthew's, Matthew chapter 10, we have recorded a teaching concerning what it's going to be like to be sent by Jesus. Chapter 13 continues on what I might consider to be the greatest hits album of Jesus and his ministry. When I was uh, in middle school, I realized that one of my favorite pathways into understanding artists was to just find their greatest hits album. So I wore out a James Taylor greatest hits album and a Billy Joel greatest hits album and a Queen greatest hits album and a... Steve Miller Band, Greatest Hits Album, and you name it, a Garth Brooks Steve, uh, Greatest Hits Album, and a Carmen Greatest Hits Album. I'm just kidding on that one. I don't know what it would have been for you, but my guess is, is that when we get to chapter 13, this recorded teaching of Jesus, you're going to start to feel, when I say these things out loud, like, oh yeah, you see chapter 13 is full of parables. And if you ask someone what they knew concerning Jesus, they'd say, oh, I don't know much about him, but isn't he the one that did that thing with the sower and the seed? Wait, isn't he the one with the treasure in the field? Didn't he talk about something like that? No, no, it wasn't a treasure. It was a pearl. I think there was a pearl somewhere, a really valuable pearl. And as you describe these things, wouldn't you be saying to yourself, oh yeah, I recognize that. I think that's the thing about a greatest hits album. You play the song and it comes on and you say like, oh, they sang that too? I recognize that. Matthew wants us to give us all the sayings of Jesus, not only Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, not only a description for the apostles, chapter 10, verse 5 through the beginning of 11, but all of the parables spoken in chapter 13 to fulfill a prophecy. I will open my mouth and speak to you in parables. The parables continue in chapters 18 and 19, and not only parables, but how to deal with with waywardness and difficulty between people. How do you reconcile when someone sins against you? Jesus teaches consistently and for a long period of time in chapters 18 and 19 of Matthew. And then finally, to cap it all off, so imagine Matthew's giving to us, these are the big speeches of Jesus, characterize his whole ministry. 
Sermon on the Mount, 5 to 7. Directions for Apostles in chapter 10. Parables in 13 and then 18 and 19. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 23. And for a number of chapters, Jesus, who speaks as one having authority, who gathered crowds like crazy, wise, the very fount of wisdom himself. You know what Jesus teaches on in those chapters at the end? The end times. Can you imagine? I don't know who your favorite person is. I don't know who your favorite wisdom giver is. I don't know who, if I announced that they were teaching somewhere tomorrow, you'd say, I'm going to move some stuff and get there. But then imagine if that person who you always love what they say happens to be talking about the one thing that you find most interesting. Oh, you're definitely canceling plans and you're going. The end in chapter 23 through 26, really 23, 24, 25 in Matthew is a recorded long teaching of Jesus who teaches with authority, the perfect one, all wisdom, teaching on one of the most interesting and crazy things in the history of the world, which is the end of the world. Can you imagine we put a marquee out front? Next week, Jesus himself teaching on dot, 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 the end times. Can you imagine the tickets we could sell? All of rural Alabama would jump on a bus and be here for the thing, right? I don't know why I picked Alabama, but... I mean, end times could stir some people up. And Jesus gives us his teaching concerning these things. He's saying, you know what's going to happen in the future? The mountains are going to be uphill. They're going to fall on people. You're going to run. You're going to wish you were dead. This temple, gone. Jesus gives teaching. And it seems as though Matthew was a writer in the Gospels, in contrast to Mark, which is miracles, 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 and Luke, which is journey, 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 and John, which is imagery, imagery, imagery. Matthew emphasizes the teaching and the words of Jesus. So what we have to look forward to, and perhaps the task ahead of us now as we consider this, is that we need to begin to have a spirit of learning. If to be a disciple means to be a learner, then Matthew's a unique opportunity for us to learn from Jesus. What does he emphasize? What does he de-emphasize? What will he say is the path to life? What does he teach? So that being said, Let's consider this specific, the first of five big teachings of Jesus in this gospel. It tells us seeing the crowds. He has in view the crowds, but he also has his disciples who are closer. One way to think about Jesus' ministry, and this could be helpful to you if you have, maybe not with your children, if you have that many children. I was going to say there should be an inner circle and then some further out. Don't do that with your kids. That creates problems. But the idea would be Jesus' ministry is kind of constantly speaking to the disciples, knowing that others are listening in. And it tells us at the beginning of 5 that these crowds that have been rushing, it says great crowds, and actually in verse 25 of chapter 4, rushed into the point where pragmatically he needed to sit on the top of a mountain. Now, a couple things about this. There are pragmatics for him going up to the side of the mountain to teach. One, it gets him away from the crowd. Two, he's up on the side of a hill and his voice would carry further. But there's more to it, I think, than that. Matthew portrays and Jesus fulfills the idea of him sitting down on the side of a mountain to teach because he is being pictured as a lawgiver. Do you remember enough of the Old Testament to remember where the law came from? Where did the commandments come? I think even if you watch those loony vegetables, you'd know this part, right? The Bob told us this, I think. Where did the law come from? It came from the Mount Sinai. Moses, the great 
leader and prophet of God's people went up to the mountain to come down to say, this is what God wants and says. And here, Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, everybody's rushing in. He goes up, he sits down on the side of the mountain, and he is going to give us the law of God. He's going to describe who God is and what he wants. So Sermon on the Mount is not just that it was a pretty place. It's not like the, uh, oh, what's that Colorado concert venue? Red Rocks, yeah. It's not Jesus at Red Rocks just because it's beautiful. It's Jesus giving a Sermon on the Mount partly to show the fulfillment of him stepping into all of these roles in Israel's history. He is going to interpret the law for all who would listen. A couple other things to think about. My guess is, and what I'm going to say as a sort of take, is that this is not a one-off, single-time teaching. Sometimes I try to, we try to tell our kids, did you know that back in the day, if you missed a TV show, you missed it? Can you believe that? You just missed it. Oh, you were excited about the one with Sesame Street and Big Bird going to the zoo. Sorry, you missed it. It'll never happen again. You just lose out. Generations of people losing out on that. So the question is, if you missed it, what if you were sick on Sermon on the Mount Day? You're just back in the fishing hut on the side of Galilee. Would you say to yourself, oh, no. The one time the Son of God is there, he sits down, he opens his mouth. I miss the whole Beatitudes. And what I'm going to submit to you is that though this was an instance, and that he, he did teach these things truthfully, more than that, I believe this is a regular pattern of the kind of teaching that Jesus would have presented. Here's partly how we know that. Remember how I said that the different Gospels have different emphasis? Luke chapter 6 records a teaching of Beatitudes, but it's in a slightly different context, a different time, in a different spirit. Or the same kind of spirit, but maybe a different posture of Jesus. Let's just look at it together. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. I'm going to read just maybe the first couple verses. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. So pause there. The idea being that Luke also records something similar in a slightly different context, and what I believe it brings up to us is this reality. Jesus spent years with his disciples. He taught regularly. At times it was his practice to go into the synagogues, the temples of the day, and he would speak concerning the law and himself. It is likely then that the Sermon on the Mount was not only a one-off experience, an episode to be lost to history, but also the ongoing soundtrack of his life. It might be the kind of thing that would ooze out of him. You know how when you think of certain people, you think of the things that they say, the things that they value, that's what makes them them? If you don't have thin skin, I would invite you maybe to a practice that could be kind of fun. Maybe get some of the people closest to you, some of your friends, a spouse, your kids. And if you just said to them, what are the things that I always say? What am I always saying? And again, only do this if you have thin skin. 
or create a culture where you want them to lie to you. You know, your choice is yours. What do I always say? Because my guess is, is that people would be able to tell you, oh, you always have this phrase. Oh, you always say that. Oh, you're always talking about X, Y, Z. It might very well be that they would be able to be a clue to your soul. They might say something like, oh, what do you always say? Oh, you say uh, stupid a lot, or you say things are hard a lot, or you're negative a lot, or you're cynical a lot, or you're angry a lot. And if that's the case, then you could say to yourself, I need help or something, you know? The point being that one of the things that makes us is not what we say one time. It might very well be the people who are closest to you. They said something one time. It was the only time they ever ever uttered the sentence in their whole life. And that just changed everything for you. But my guess is that it's more your mom telling you about the way that she loves you or what value you have or some kind of thing to watch out for. It was your dad saying John Woodenisms or something like, remember, slow, slow is fast and fast is slow or something like that. My dad used to try to quote that too. See how bad I listened? The idea here is that those who are impacting to us often are impacted because they are committed to some principle or some teaching or some saying over the course of their life. It's what comes out of them. You bump into them, it's what spills. And Jesus likely, not only in a one-off kind of mind, spoke about the blessed life, but that this was the kind of thing that was his regular contemplation. He said the things that he always said. I often quote my grandfather because he often said the same things over and over again. I remember asking him one time, my grandpa was one of those people who has a song for everything you say. You know those kind of people? You say some phrase and immediately they just start singing. Sometimes it's endearing and fun and other times it's unbelievably obnoxious. You say something like, Oh, yeah. I don't even know how to sing that song, but like, uh, what's that all-star song? It's like uh, somebody once told me. There you go. So you're talking to your friends, and you're really serious, and you're like, you know, someone once told me, and they're just like, somebody, man. You know, they just go to a song. Do you have a friend like that? Are you that person? My grandpa was like that. No matter what I said to him, I said, Grandpa, it's kind of gold-colored wheat over there. Oh, the golden wheat of your hair. Like he would had some kind of like song. At one point, I remember asking him about it, and he said he would always say things like this. Singing is fun. Everybody likes singing. And then he, or he would say things like this. Hard to be sad when you're singing. Just hard to be sad when you're singing. He's one of the most joyful people. And I'd hear him say things like this. He would do things intentionally because he didn't want to be sad. Now, some people might say this is just good old Midwestern repression of real feelings. And that it could be, but don't be so judgy. These are the things that he said over and over and over again. Parents don't impact their children by telling them how to tie their shoes once and it's done. Your two-year-old doesn't need you to say one time to them, hey, you know what I was thinking from now on? What if you didn't have a diaper? You know? Just thinking. That's got to be said every day, five times a day, over and over and over again. Jesus was the kind of teacher. This is important, I think. Jesus was the kind of teacher who consistently spoke of a blessed life in God. 
This was something that came out regularly concerning the hope that he gave to people. What did it mean to preach the kingdom for Jesus? Well, my guess is that he would say things like this. He'd say, you know your circumstances, they're really bad, they're difficult. Hold on and trust yourself to God and you're going to inherit everything. He'd say, you know those people who are super mean to you? They have contempt for you in their hearts. They're saying false things like crazy. Well, you know what? One day, perfect justice is going to come. Everything will be known. This was the way that he taught. You bumped into Jesus and this came out. So how do we summarize? We're going to spend a few weeks looking at each of these phrases. They're really upside down. They're sort of backwards. One of the first times I ever played a video game with a joystick, it asked me a question. Do you want an inverted stick or not? You guys know what this means? It means that when you press up, the screen looks down. And when you pull down, the screen looks up. Imagine like flying an airplane. In some sense, this Sermon on the Mount begins with an inverted view of the world. Jesus is going to invite everybody to say, hey, come over here. Look at this. When they think they're pressing up, they're pressing down. And when they think that they're pressing down, just hold on. You'll see that they're pressing up. And we're going to spend a few weeks considering how this works. What does it really mean to be poor in spirit? How could mourning and meekness and hunger and thirst be powerful and good things in the world? But I want to do what I promised and hang my hat on two concepts. The first is just to define this idea. I don't know, maybe your version of the Bible has happy written in there. I saw once a very enterprising, I think risk-taking and kind of delightful translation of Matthew chapter 5 that instead of saying blessed are the poor in spirit just said happy happy are the poor in spirit happy are those who mourn maybe you have a different translation but I want to take a moment just to describe why did I say happy would be somewhere to hang it's because the word markarios that's the Greek word that's given here is not easy to get the fullness of in order to get the full idea of what is Jesus trying to describe when he says blessed each of these nine times we really have to pull it a number of different words. We have to go full thesaurus. You see, Markarios did mean a kind of state of light happiness, of rest and receiving, a state of inner soul bliss, a place of being fortunate, a word that has often been used to describe it. It is not necessarily a feeling not necessarily only an experience, but more a state of being that may be marked by a word or a concept like flourishing. I'm not sure what the kids are calling it these days, but at some point in the past, someone might have just said, winning. Or what, what phrase would you say now? I don't know. We used to say, I'm killing it. Like a slang word? Slaying it. Oh, it's getting more violent these days. Is that what's going on? <laughs> To flourish, meaning to have bubbling from your soul all that ought to be bubbling from one's soul if and because they were stamped with the image of God himself. God is infinite life. God is infinite light. God is infinite goodness. God is infinite creativity. God is 
infinite justice, infinite wisdom. And here's the amazing thing. You and I are stamped with that image. It's at the deepest part of our souls. So what ought to be bubbling up if the source and the fount of our life is the image of God himself? Well, something like flourishing, happy, blissful, blessed life. Now, blessed is a fine word. It's a little bit misunderstood. I think hashtag blessed makes it a little bit basic. (laughs) There's that word again. And so I like the word happy. Let me tell you why I like the word happy. I like the word happy because everyone has experienced and knows what it's like. I like the word happy because it's not riddled with religious thought or baggage. I like the idea of happy because it feels simple and inviting. It feels like rest, not like striving. And there is something to think about. What would it be to have soul happiness? Jesus is describing a kind of life that offers us that. What did it mean to preach the kingdom? Well, it means to imagine and to receive a state of being where you have a soul happiness. That is the idea of Markarios. You know, every good wisdom teacher, every good giver of ethics down through the ages has had a series of these. It's what the Proverbs were. It's what Aristotle may have done. It's what any political party promises. It's what TV commercials want to give us. You'll be happy if you're like this. The idea here is that Jesus is the rightful teacher and the authoritative... It turns out that Jesus is the authoritative voice on true flourishing and real happiness. He created us and sustains us after all. He's come to gather us back and purchase us by His blood after all. We've been designed to worship Him forever after all. So when He opens His mouth to speak, we ought to listen Before we go on to wholeness, just for a moment, I also want to note how grateful we should be that when Jesus opens his mouth, he says words like blessed or happy. I've made this point before. Stop me if I've made this point. I saw Brian come in so I could tell him, speaking of things we always say, we had the college kids over while he was gone in Israel, and I gave them a little speech about the joys and wonders of being a part of a local church and a campus ministry. And at the end, I said, anything to think about this stuff? Does that make sense or whatever? And they rolled their eyes and they just said, you sound just like Brian. He's always saying that. He's always saying that. Have you been grateful lately for the fact that Jesus came and he's always saying things like, blessed are you? Or happy are you? I've said before that Christmas itself is only good news because we know the end of the story. If we didn't know the end of the story, if we just knew that God was visiting us and came in the flesh, it might be trouble. He might have finally come and been done with us. Imagine the God of the universe taking on human flesh, coming and living a perfect life, knowing full well that everyone around him has fallen and sinful. And then he opens his mouth. He stands on the side of the mountain and he opens his mouth. Instead of saying blessed, he could have said burn. All of it burn. The fact that the Son of God says blessed, says happy, is a gift to us. It should be something that we think on and rest on. 
So secondarily, any good ethic system, any good kingdom, not only has a state of being, but a state of, of ending, a state of belonging. Where does it go? And it turns out that what Jesus is trying to show us is that ultimately, we will have in our lives a kind of stated flourishing and happiness of soul that will be wholehearted. And not only wholehearted, but eternal and everlasting. Not in tension or broken or shattered. You see, I think sometimes one of the struggles in a fallen world is that we experience moments of shatteredness or difficulty and we believe that it's impossible to ever retain or ever get back to the idea of wholeness. Integrity. Wholeheartedness is one of the great commands of all of Scripture. And Jesus tells us not only in these blessed sayings, but in the future to come. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not here yet, will be. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. It's coming. He's pointing to a future reality of wholeness, of integrity, where things are no longer compromised or tenuous. You ever experienced happiness or got to a moment of being, and then you think to yourself, well, now I'm stressed out because I have to hold it here. You play the great, the great life game of whack-a-mole, You finally whacked all the moles. It's over. The lights went down and the music turned off and there's no more moles and you're still just standing there holding the... And your buddy comes up and says, just put them down, man. The moles are gone. But even in your state of happiness and having one there, you say to yourself like, no, 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 I've been here before. The music's going to go in a second. They're just going to pop their ugly heads up again. You know what that is, is that's an understanding of living in a fallen world that lacks integrity, lacks wholeness. We are in parts and we are broken. We experience one thing and it always feels intention or grasping from another. The moment that you rest and feel like you ought to receive, you're tempted to feel guilty that you shouldn't be doing this. You really should be working. And if you've never had the experience of, of that, maybe you should work harder. I don't know. But Jesus says, not only is happiness and flourishing and bliss something that is offered to those, the being, very nature of the being of those who follow me, but it will be like this forever. Happy and whole, eternally. That is, in part, what it means to preach the kingdom. Jesus comes to describe and then to begin to fulfill all the promises of Scripture so that those who walk with Him start to experience a sense of being that has been theirs in God eternally. i say the last thing that I want to say before we dive into the next few weeks is to think on these things, to expect these things, to desire to be more like this as a, as a state of existence and avoid the temptation. Maybe some of you are the kind of people who read this and you say to yourself, oh, awesome, finally a list. There's nine of them. They're in order. So you have your journal and you say to yourself something like this. Okay, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Okay, give some stuff away. Check. Next, blessed are those who mourn. Buy a black dress. Mourn better. You might be thinking to yourself, I now have a nine-step plan to happiness. If I can just do this well enough, I'll get there. Please do not do that. I think you'll be missing the entirety of the point. 
The emphasis here is not on a God who is saying, do these things and then I will bless, but instead describing the state of existence for those who have been reunited to their Father in heaven. The emphasis here, Jesus is giving a a sense of wonder that those who walk with Him closely find themselves joyful, happy, full of life, despite circumstances that the world often says should keep them low. So the goal here is to be in wonder that we've been invited to follow and to walk with a Christ who offers life like this.